the hope and the optimism that you uh, see reflected in that particular International Mission Board piece is a far cry from where many of our cultural observers are in this day. It is stunning and heartbreaking to hear of the profound pessimism that uh, they uh, articulate regarding our um, world. And there is something to say about that. There's some of them that say, in fact, people around the world are too attached to the screens on their phone or tablets to care for others. There is a lack of effort developed uh, in our world to develop a sense of sympathy with those in the world simply because of the attachment to the screen in front of them. Uh, as far as the job front is concerned, some anticipate good jobs only for a brilliant few. In fact, a recent Oxford University study predicts 45% of jobs could be lost over the next several decades. Even now, corporate execs and companies are replacing workers with technology, and that trend will only accelerate. Uh, as far as uh, classes and the uh, interaction between them, history teaches that envy and jealousy will surely cause the have-nots to rise up against the haves. Uh, from the French Revolution to the burning of American cities, this is a historical trend, and the current peace or fragile peace cannot last long that we have now. Uh, education has not uh, and cannot mitigate this disruption. We have tried education and it did not work. We've not educated our way out of violence or poverty or justice or family breakdown or drug use. Education has only succeeded in giving us smarter criminals, abusers, and thieves. The world population is 7.5 billion and shows no sign of slowing. We cannot expect 7.5 billion people to respond with peace and love in a time of degradation. A single disgruntled person could walk into an airport with a briefcase full of a virovirus, open it, and potentially contaminate much of the world with one act. And the world is rushing towards the perfect storm of massive loss of good jobs, abuse of technology, terrorism, available of compact weapons of super mass destruction, and desperation. One man said, only the paranoid will survive. What we've heard in the video before us, as we promote the Lottie Moon Christmas offering in this season, and by the way, we've got the largest goal we've ever had as a church family, and what we find in the ministry and life and coming of Jesus Christ cast a far different vision. And to learn and know of this, I want you to join me, not in the Gospels and the story of the birth of Jesus, but I want you to join me in a passage that articulates and demonstrates the uh, visually and in story form the purpose for Jesus' coming, and that's in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. E. Stanley Jones, a Methodist missionary, said that the early church did not look at the world and say in dismay, look at what the world has come to. But in delight they said, look who has come into the world. That's what they said. And, and much of what they were dealing with in those days is not far different than what we are dealing with in our day on a global scale. But that's what we have in Genesis chapter 1. What we find is that in the coming of Jesus Christ, Jesus began to recreate all things. He finishes that in the last two chapters of the Bible 
with his second coming. But there is a whole Bible doctrine of recreation. Turning to Christ recreates us. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That, that's the salvation experience. Turning to Christ. Uh, and then Ephesians chapter 2. Verse uh, number 24 uh, says, Put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Again, that's the salvation experience. We were created in Christ according to God. We were saved according to Him. And, and then Colossians 3, 9 and 10. You have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man who was renewed in the knowledge according to the image of Him who created Him. In other words, when a man or woman comes to Jesus Christ, he, God himself begins a process of recreation in that individual's life. And he begins to make that person look more and more like Jesus. Now, now look with me in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. God is trying to restore what you read in Genesis 1 and 2. When Christ returns, it will be more brilliant, but he's doing it progressively in this day. But as an illustration of that, our world is much like verse number 2. The earth, in Genesis 1, the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Is that not what our world is like today? When God began to, uh, when God created the world, initially it was formless and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. But then the Spirit of God came, and look what happened. God said, let there be light, and there was light. He created the world, and then He decorated the world. Men and women, boys and girls outside of Jesus Christ are formless and void, and darkness hovers over them. But then the Spirit of God steps in. And God says in that soul, let there be light, and there's light. And God begins a process of recreating that individual making that person more and more like Jesus. Hey, let me ask you something. Wouldn't you love to see a world that looks just like Jesus? Wouldn't it not be a wonderful thing if every marriage and every family and every workplace and, um, my goodness, every church would look just like Jesus Christ? That's where God is going and Jesus Christ initiated this process of recreation when Jesus came to the earth, when he was born in Bethlehem. That started it all. So contrary to the pessimism that some social observers are articulating, Jesus Christ is going to recreate it all. Don't you want to be a part of that? Well, how does he do that? Well, he's going to restore what we read in Genesis 1 and 2. And I want us to look specifically at verses 26 through 31. It says there, beginning in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Well, see, I've given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. To you it shall be for food. 
Also to every beast on the earth, to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is life, I have given every green herb for food. And it was so. Then God saw everything he had made, and indeed it was very good. So evening and morning were the sixth day. Well, what is God going to do in Christ when he recreates uh, all things? Well, first, when Christ came to recreate crowns of sovereignty. Crowns of sovereignty. When God created men and women here in this text, he parceled out and shared with them his sovereignty. That's right. He gave to them the opportunity and the ability to rule, and that is actually the dominating theme of this passage. Uh, He um, gave them the ability to rule. They were to be crowned with God's sovereignty. And that's what the text says. God has parceled out this sovereignty. Now look at the priority of it in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image to have dominion. Well, there are those who speculate the meaning of the word us. God's looking all over and he says something that may have caught your attention or may not. Let us make man in our image. Let us make humankind in our image. Well, who in the world is he talking to? Who in the world is going to participate in the creation of humankind? Who is God talking to? There are some that speculate he's talking to angels. Well, that's not possible. Angels don't create. And humans are not made in the image of angels. Uh, Some uh, expect that uh, God is uh, simply expressing himself in plurality here. But look back at chapter 1, verse 2. The earth was without form and void and darkness was on the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the earth. The first person of the Trinity mentioned in the Bible happens to be the Holy Spirit. So who who is doing the speaking here? Well, it's not entirely revealed in this passage, but it's hinted at in verse 2. In verse 26, you have a conversation here between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when it came to the creation of humankind, all all, uh, members of the Godhead were involved in the creation of humankind. God is three in one. Now some say, well, that that math doesn't add up. Oh, it may not add up, but it multiplies very well. If you take one plus one plus one and tell someone it equals one, well, that's going to be very difficult. But that's not what we have here. That's not biblical mathematics with the Trinity. With the Trinity, it's not one plus one plus one. It's one times one times one, and that equals One, you've got three separate integers, and I'm sorry to cause you to pass out with a little math lesson here, but three separate integers with multiplied majesty equals one God. Let me ask you, how many members are there in your family? In my family, there are six. Does that mean we have six families? Well, no, we've got one family. Uh, The one here is a compound one, a corporate one. And so this is so important Uh, the creation of humankind and their dominion, their sovereignty, their crown, that every member of the Trinity involves himself uh, into the act of creation. That's the priority. But then I want you to notice also the picture. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. So humankind, men and women, were created 
in the image and likeness of God. That language will be picked up in chapter 5 when Seth is born in the image and likeness of his father, Adam. So you could look at Seth and see Adam in him. Well, the same is true here. You're supposed to be, you and I are supposed to be able to look at ourselves and one another and see something of the likeness of Almighty God. We are to be a picture of divinity. Now, this word, image, was used oftentimes in the ancient world, in Moses' day and other places and other times, for some of the statues that, of themselves that kings would build of themselves and place at the boundaries of their kingdom. And that's what God has done with humankind. Every individual is to express a boundary of the kingdom of God. The extent of the rule of the king. And we're to picture that. So so there's the priority and there's the picture. But look at the prominence. It goes on to say, Let us make man in our image and in our likeness and let them have dominion. Rule and reign is how you could translate that. Or dominion is perfectly fine with me. And then for the rest of this text, the word over, over is used eight different times in this short text. Let them have rule or dominion over the fish. Let them have rule or dominion over the creeping things. Let them have rule, so, so it's unbiblical to run from a spider. Um, so uh, let them have dominion over these various things. And, and that's what you have here in the prominence of the creation of humankind. Now let's talk for just a moment about the doctrine of recreation. God's intention is to give, uh, is for humans to participate in his role administration for the sake of his son by crowning them with sovereignty. And let me go through the biblical revelation real quickly with five brief statements. It begins with creation. God shared his sovereignty with us that we might rule in his royal administration. We were to be part of the royal family, but then corruption. We forfeited this posture. We forfeited this position, this privilege to Satan with sin. And demons took our place. Then Christ, Christ demonstrated his rule over uh, over all these things and purchased, repurchased, regained, redeemed for us that opportunity to rule by dying on the cross and paying off the court of God with his own blood. And then the church. The church is the recreation of the kingdom of Eden, the kingdom of God. So we are to look like a variable kingdom of Eden. Our marriages, our families, our churches, our relation, and how we interact with the rest of the world is to remind the world of something they have yet to see, and that happens to be what was created in Genesis 1 and 2 and what is coming in more brilliant fashion in the last two chapters of the Bible. And then there's the conclusion. God will complete this process, or Christ will complete this process when He returns, and we shall reign with Him forever and forever. Now, did you know that about yourself? You're not some lousy, two-bit, insignificant, do-nothing, know-nothing. If you know Jesus Christ is King, you're a child of the King, involved in royal administration. And that's what God has intended to do with you. Now, this dominion and this rule and this power, Jesus demonstrated in his own ministry. You remember Mark chapter 11, verse 2. 
He told the disciples to go into Jerusalem and find a donkey colt that had never been ridden. Well, that's a mix of circumstances that could be exciting. And they brought that colt to Jesus, and you remember what Jesus did. He got on it and rode it and demonstrated he's a king and prince of peace. Now, had I gotten on that thing, he would have bucked me off, and we would have had all sorts of commotion. But Jesus gets on that colt that had never been ridden, had not been broken, and he rides it, and that thing marches into Jerusalem as if he's carrying the Prince of Peace, because that's what he was doing. Jesus has rule, and those in his administration are supposed to have that kind of rule as well. We forfeited that through sin, but that's not all. Uh, Jesus warned Peter in Mark chapter 14, verse 30. He said, Peter, you're going to deny me before the cock crows three times. Well, what would happen is that a horn would blow for the different watches. And it would set off roosters in the city. And one should have done it. But Jesus is controlling even the roosters. And the horn blows one time and the rooster stays still. It blows a second time and Jesus makes it stay still. It blows a third time and Jesus is trying to give Peter a penetrating sign. And the rooster crows then the third time. Jesus has control over not only the beasts of the field, he's got control over the birds as well. Uh, but then there's a third illustration. It's time to pay some taxes, and Jesus did what we all wish we could do. He went fishing. He told Peter, Peter, we need to pay these taxes like everyone else. And so go on to the sea, throw your hook in, bring it up, and there will be a fish there, and in his mouth will be enough tax money for you and me. And ladies and gentlemen, that is precisely what happened. Remarkable. So not only the beast of the field, not only the birds of the air, but also the fish of the sea. This is the power that Jesus Christ demonstrated all of his people are to have in life. And one day will. Jesus is going to restore and return all these. So listen to me. This is terribly important in our walk with one another. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16 and 17, he said this, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, we yet now no longer regard him any longer. In other words, we knew Jesus in the days of his humanity. He wasn't very impressive. We didn't regard him very well then. Hey, man, we got over that a long time ago. And then he applies it to us. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a, say it with me, new creation. Old things passed away, behold, all things become new. So listen to me. Whenever you come upon a person, you're not coming upon someone who's awkward socially. You're coming upon someone who is or could be a member of the kingdom of God. When you come across somebody uh, who um, may not have much of this world's goods, you're not coming across a poor person. You're coming across someone who is either a member of the kingdom of God or they could be. When you come across someone who is racially different, culturally different. You're not coming across somebody who's racially and culturally different. You're coming across someone who happens to be either a member of the kingdom of God or that person could be. Uh, C.S. Lewis said, you have never met an ordinary person. You have never met a mere mortal. Ladies and gentlemen, every person you and I meet 
is either a member of the royal administration because they've received Christ, or they could be. They've got to be treated, therefore, as if they are royalty or potential royalty. Look, and if you've got a hard time establishing relationships, you're scared to death to say hello, you need to grow. You need to move beyond that. You need to get in the midst of people as if you belong there. This is your Father's world. Jesus Christ is Master and Lord returning again. And the best thing that you can do is love people and embrace them. Teach them to do that. So that's the first thing. Christ came to recreate crowns of sovereignty. But there's a second thing. Christ came also to recreate contrast in the sexes. Now I have enormous grief over those who are struggling with transgender and uh, gender differences. Boys who are confused whether or not they're girls. Girls who are confused about whether or not they're boys. I've got really, really strong, strong grief in my heart for those who are struggling. Some are simply rebelling against culture, but some of them mentally simply cannot get past the uh, challenge and difficulty of that. It's like a young lady who may be 23 years old, she weighs 55 pounds. And she looks in the mirror and she says, I feel so fat. A young lady dealing with anorexia. That's oftentimes what you're dealing with with some of the transgender difficulty. Some of it's just out of rebellion, but some of it is a very, very real difficulty. There's such a mental uh, block and a uh, mental and emotional difficulty with accepting who they are, much like an anorexic young lady. And what is worse is that there are those who get behind them and encourage them to change who they are. That's like looking at the anorexic young lady, 23 years old, 55 pounds, and recommending gastric bypass surgery to her. American College of Pediatricians say to do that to a child or a teenager and encourage them to, to undergo gender uh, reassignment surgery is child abuse, and I agree with them. I agree with them. So I, I've, got to, I've got some concerns for those who are struggling with that. And I want to say that if you're struggling with that today, you are in the right place. You belong here. We want you here. And we will walk with you as you seek to be conformed to Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not making this up. Look with me in verse number 27. So God created man, mankind in general, in his own image, in the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. Jesus further emphasized this in Matthew 19 when talking about marriage and actually quotes this passage to substantiate male-female marriage for life. And that's what he does in Matthew chapter 19. So ladies and gentlemen, um, the truth is God created men and women. God is the one who was responsible for the differences between men and women. And don't you know he's had a good time watching those differences play out? Don't you know it? I mean, just imagine, if we didn't have dads, who would embarrass teenage daughters? <laughs> if we didn't have mothers... Uh, who, who would say to uh, uh, siblings, uh, you need to be nice to your brother. One day you might need his kidney. I mean, who, who wouldn't say that? <laughs> 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 
Enjoy the difference. Now, do you know why men and women are different? Well, God made them that way. Well, why did God make them that way? God made men and women different in His image. He took some elements and qualities of His image, and He deposited these into men, believe it or not. And He took others of these qualities and deposited them into women. And, and I, I'm, I'm not uh, recommending stereotyping, but ladies and gentlemen, men and women are different. And there are some things that you can expect to come from men and some things to, uh, you can expect to come from women. And it is a good thing, according to verse number 31. This is how God created humans. And so, this is profoundly necessary for children as well. Oh, all manner of confusion can arise in the heart and mind of a child if that child does not have that image before them on a daily basis from their mother and their daddy. When a husband and wife are walking together in harmony and they're walking with God and they have got a growing marriage in front of their children, then what you have with these children is that you have children who see the complete image of God displayed in front of them. Listen to me carefully. It is very, very important that you have a strong, growing marriage. And the child born in Bethlehem can help out with it. He can. Don't run from each other. Don't divorce each other. Don't fight, fuss, and fume with each other, especially in front of kids. You do all that you can to build a strong, healthy marriage. If that's not a possibility for you, there's some other things we can do that uh, I will speak on at a later date. Not all is lost, not all is hopeless, don't get discouraged, but this is how God has made men and women. Some of His image in men, some of His image in women, and He wants them to be bound together for life in order to raise godly offspring, according to Malachi 4. And, and so this is what God has done. Jesus Christ came then not to abolish the differences between the sexes, but to uh, but to recreate them and make them strong. But there's a third thing that he came to recreate. Not only crowns of sovereignty and contrast between sexes, but then covenant of satisfaction. Do you know that today about 30,000 children will die either from starvation or more will pass away and die because of the uh, fallout from malnutrition, a disease, a weakened immune system, those kinds of things. 30,000 today. And did you know it would only take redistribution of the world's grain of 2% to feed those that are struggling? Did you know also that 70% of the world's wealth, and it may be higher than that, but that's the last figure I read, 70% of the world's wealth happens to be in traditional Christian lands in Europe and America that have traditionally, historically associated with the Christian faith. The hunger, the malnourishment, the starvation is in those lands where Hinduism and Buddhism and atheism and Shintoism and all the isms that I hope become wasms real quickly dominate in this day. That's what you have on the world scene. But look what God promised in verse number uh, 29. God said, see, I've given you every herb that yields seed, which is on the face of the earth, and every tree whose fruit yields seed. 
To you it shall be for food. To you it shall be for food. Now, Moses is writing this to the Israelites. They have just left Egypt and all the Egyptian mythology and paganism. And in Egyptian mythology and paganism, humans would come before their gods and feed the gods. That's right. Humans would make offerings and sacrifices to take care of the food needs of their gods. Do you know that happens all over the world today? You will find in different places in the world that worshipers and devotees of world religions and uh, uh, animistic uh, religions and uh, uh, other faiths, they have erected shrines. And there people in the community can offer a sacrifice. There are some that have these in their own homes. One woman told her son that um, uh, until uh, you die, the gods will eat you. And so these false gods and these false religions are consuming large amounts of resources the people are to eat. And so historically, and in Egypt, and even today throughout the world, humans feed their gods, but not so God. God feeds the humans. God takes care of their needs. And this is what he's saying in this text. Now, that's not what's going on in the world today. Not at all. But God has a different vision, and God has a different view. Ladies and gentlemen, He is going to recreate all things, all the um, feeding systems, all the agricultural systems, all the homes, all those things that are necessary for provision. And He's going to make this world look with the beauty and the plenty and the abundance of a Buckingham Palace, of a White House, of, of a Biltmore Estate and you add a Lifeway store, a Christian bookstore, and all, all of it, there what you have then is that you've got the coming world that he describes in the last two chapters of the Bible. This is where God is going in Jesus Christ. This is why Christ came, to begin this process of recreation and to restore to the earth his original vision for the world. Or, or to put it in terms of the hymn, Love Divine, All Love's Excelling, there's a cry out in the third verse of that hymn, Finish then thy new creation, pure and spotless let us be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee. Change from glory into glory, till in heaven we take our place, till we crash our, cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love, and praise. This is what is coming in Jesus Christ. You need to get ready. Now let me ask you, Biltmore Estate, White House, Buckingham Palace. How does your house look today? In John chapter 1, verse 12, Scripture promises, To as many as received him, gave he the right, the royal right, the authorization, to become the children of God, even to those who believe on His name. What a marvelous promise. If you will see the need of your own heart and life and acknowledge what a mess it is and decide 
Something's got to be done about it. I can't. Christ can. And then fling open the door of your heart and life and receive the crucified, risen Savior. He will come in and begin the process of recreation. And that's why I asked you about your home this morning. Let's imagine that you've struggled lately. And physically, you simply cannot do anything to your home, and it's a mess. You walk in, and you say, I'm done with it. Something has got to change. And you decide to do something. And you decide, I can't. Physically, I'm simply not capable. At that moment, what you have done in an analogous way is that you have repented. Jesus said, unless you repent, you shall likewise perish. You've got to come to the place where, just like you've looked at your home at times and said, this is a mess, I'm not standing it anymore, something's got to change, and I need some help. You've done that with your home at times, you need to do that with your life now. The Bible calls that repentance. And let's say that friends are aware of the difficulty that you've had, and they hire a cleaning service to come in and and take care of your home. Or family does. And you receive it. You welcome it. You're humbled by it. At that moment, analogously, what you've done is that you have just trusted. And that's what God calls you to do today. That's what God commands from you. He commands that you acknowledge, "My, I, I'm a mess. Things are not right with God. Things may be right everywhere else, but things are not right with God at the very least. Or maybe things are not right everywhere else. And things are not right with God. I'm done with it. It's got to change. I cannot do it on my own. I am incapable of doing anything. And the Father sends Jesus because He loves you. He's knocking on the door of your heart today. And you receive Him. You receive the help. You receive His presence. And He comes in and He begins that process of recreation. And you need to know He's going to do that and He's not ever going to stop it. He's going to change everything about you. Because if anyone be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Is that where you are today? Then you're ready to open your heart to Jesus Christ. I'm going to pray with you in just a minute. And when I pray with you, I want you to open your heart to Christ and do something about this. We'll have staff here in the front. And when we start to sing, you come, you meet one of them, and you say, it's time for Jesus to come to my house. Or something similar. I'm ready to receive Christ. Because John 1.12 says, To as many as received him, gave he the right to be the children of God, even to those that believe on his name. Others of you, God's moving on you to become part of this church family. You come as well. Come become part of Beach Haven. Others of you, God's calling you to ministry or missions. God may be doing something else in your life. But you come, and you come today, as staff will be standing here, and we'll be glad to receive you. Would you quickly stand with me, please, and let's pray together.